morning. <clears throat> Good to be with you. Um, yes, I am a student of John. Uh, so, how badly the sermon goes, you can blame John. Um, I, I'm delighted to be with you. Yes, John and Heather gave Katie and I our premarital counseling, and um, that's one of the main reasons why we are still, of course, married today. Uh, John and Heather pointed us to Christ as the foundation of our marriage, and that has been the foundation um, for our marriage since that time we had that premarital counseling. So I thought it'd be fitting for, of course, us to look and point you to Christ in this text. Um, what are we doing in Luke 2 in October? Well, I often am requested to fill pulpits, and I always try to do a text that is very familiar. So everyone knows this text well. We read it every single year. But I also think it's helpful to shake us a little bit from the holiday season trappings in the context in which we read this text. When I'm usually reading Luke 2 or the beginning of Matthew, I am thinking about holiday shopping and hot chocolate and the Christmas tree. And yes, this is great. Jesus in a manger, it's so sweet and cuddly, and he's also God, and okay, anyways, I have to get on with my holiday. And I'm super busy, and I'm also super joyful because I love Christmas and I love the holiday spirit that it brings. So that context often intrudes and competes with us reading the text afresh and reading these words de novo, new. And so to see how it is that Luke is painting the nativity scene. And what I want you to highlight is not just the sweet and cuddly and warm feelings that you get during Christmas when you read this passage. I want you to actually see the way in which Luke gives it to us, which is that this passage is tragic, actually. This tragic passage is a passage that Luke focuses on what I titled this sermon, foolishness. It's humiliating. There's shame involved. So I want to say, we don't often recognize that in the holiday season, but I want us to focus on, on the context that Luke gives us, the way he writes this. There are two main points to this sermon, not three. So that's an early Christmas present right there. <laughs> two points, not three. Luke wants us to know that Jesus Christ was born into a state of tragic and shameful humiliation. That's the first point. Luke wants us to know that Jesus Christ was born into a state of tragic and shameful humiliation. We often theologically talk about the humiliation of the second person of the Trinity. And we're talking about Jesus Christ coming to take on flesh. And that's beneath him. He's God. But I'm meaning humiliation in a different sense. Not only in that sense, but also just the status of the nativity scene. Point two. 
Luke wants us to know that through this humiliation, he has secured salvation and peace. That's the two points of the sermon. Christ's humiliation results in our salvation and peace before God. The seeming foolish nature of his mission results in our salvation and peace. You have heard probably before the foolishness of the cross. Well, I believe that Luke is painting for us the foolishness of the manger. Real simple. Humiliation demonstrated in the manger and salvation and peace will result through this mission. Now, there are two main applications. So it's actually a four-point sermon. Sorry, it tricks you. There's two main applications, but they are also very simple. Application one, by faith imitate Christ. As simple as that. Be as Christ was, act like him. Be as Christ is, follow the lamb wherever he goes, as the book of Revelation says. Application two, as you imitate Christ, know that there is no safer place to be. As you imitate Christ, there is not a safer, saner, healthier place to be. Now, point one, Luke wants us to see Christ in a state of tragic and shameful humiliation. Notice the context. If you have your your text out, I want you to to notice the context here. Luke describes, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Who is Caesar Augustus? Good question. Caesar Augustus is also known as Octavius, son of Julius Caesar. He's the emperor of Rome. But why does Luke mention him? Because as Luke shows, he is the reason, of course, that Mary and Joseph show up to this small but important town called Bethlehem. But I don't believe that's the only reason Luke mentioned Caesar. You see, Augustus is not just any Roman emperor. He's the Caesar who ushered in Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. He's a big deal, is what I'm trying to tell you. This is like mentioning Genghis Khan or Winston Churchill. This is a known figure. We also know that Caesar was a self-proclaimed son of God. People called him savior of the known world. And if you scroll down in your text, you can see some of the the parallels in the names, right? That Jesus is described as savior. And he ushers in peace on earth. The parallels there are striking. There are two kings in this text, two rulers. One explicit and one seemingly implicit. But it's not just the parallels, it's also the, con- the contrast that Luke paints between these two kings. Notice how Augustus, he issues a decree, and his power causes everyone to go to their homes. Even Joseph and his family, verse 3, all went to be registered, each to his own Town And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. This should not strike us as odd. Augustus is the most powerful man in the world at this point. Whatever he says goes. But what about this other king? 
in this text. What about King Jesus? Verse 7. She, that is Mary, gave birth to him and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. Now, you might be asking yourself, what is a swaddling cloth? Maybe you're not asking yourself that question, but I'm forcing you to ask that question. What is a swaddling cloth? Well, it's not a soft and silky little baby's blanket. Sorry. Luke is not describing Jesus' blankie. The custom of wrapping babies in swaddling cloths was the act of tightly wrapping linens around the baby so they couldn't move. Jesus cannot lift a finger compared to Augustine, or Augustus and his word and everything happens. He was bound and laid in a manger in a food trough just to get the literal version of that word. He was put into a food trough and a bin used to feed animals. So here is the king of the universe, the king of the most high, as Gabriel described him earlier. Here is the holy one, the horn of salvation, and he is bound up to be helpless and placed in a manger. The contrast with Caesar is laughable. Trapped in swaddling cloths in a food trough. That is not the way we describe the birth of a king. That is the way we describe the birth of an ignoble servant, the destitute, quite literally, the homeless. We have seen Augustine's power, but this baby seems to be not even able to lift a finger. What our text moves from is next from weakness into shame. Do you see this as you follow along in the text? Do you see why Jesus is placed, why Luke mentions that he is placed in this weak and powerless position? Because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, literally, the text in the Greek says, because a place for them, because a place is not for them in the guest house. The, the guest house, the katulumati is that Greek word. Sounds like something you'd order at a Japanese food restaurant. I'll take two katulumatis. The katulumati is not an inn. That's not a very good translation. The Greek word for inn is pandoxian. It's used later on in Luke's gospel. Luke is describing a place that is used for non-commercial hospitality. It is a room connected to a house where people live. Mary and Joseph did not show up to a hotel with a no vacancy sign out front. Joseph brought his pregnant wife to the place of his ancestors, to the place where his cousins, his uncles, his aunts would be. Each went to, to their own town. We don't know, and whether, whether placing him in a manger, we don't know if it was due to overcrowding or cruelty or suspicion on account of Mary's pregnancy or downright negligence. We don't know. Luke doesn't tell us. We're not sure. But we are sure of this. There was no place for them. 
How could it be that the Lord, the Son of the Most High God, comes to the very city that is named after him, Bethlehem, the house of bread, the house of the true bread of heaven, and there is no room for him? How could it be that the greater David comes to the city of David, to his own, his own kindred, and his own people, and he has no place? He's not welcomed by the town with songs of praise and thanksgiving. The child is exiled, neglected to be with the animals, laid into a feeding bin. He's displaced from any sort of position of decency. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Does that sound familiar? That is John's reflection on the advent of Jesus coming into the world. Jesus will later pick up on this language. Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. I also find it fascinating that the only people who sought after to see the birth of Jesus Christ, other than those who might have received a supernatural revelation like the shepherds and you know, Elizabeth and Zechariah, the, the only people who were working out the exegesis of the Old Testament and to make sense of these things, to seek after this birth, were not even Israelites. They were men from the east, the wise men. And they had that specific Request, right? Where is the king of the Jews that we might worship him? They're not in our text, but it highlights the status of Israel at this moment in history. Do you remember what Jesus' constant retort to the religious leaders of that day was? His constant retort to them before he said anything was this phrase. Have you not read? The picture of the religious leadership for the people of God at the time of the arrival of their king is nothing short of abysmal. Remember when Jesus reinforced this sad reality as he wept over Jerusalem? Yes, Jerusalem, the other city of David, right? The pinnacle of the religion, the locus where every single typological reflection of the entire Old Testament was compressed into one city. Everything from the name to the furniture in the temple was screaming about the Messiah God. What does Jesus say about Jerusalem? Oh, Jerusalem, would that you, even you, had known this, de- this day the things that make for peace. For you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, allow me to go one more octave lower in this minor key of this point, which is that the chief priests actually say something to Pilate before Jesus is crucified, right before he enters into the epitome of his suffering and shame and humiliation. What do they say to Pilate right before that happens? 
We have no king but Caesar. That's the status of Israel at this point. Here's the overall point. The pattern of a weak and shameful and humiliating mission is stamped into Jesus' life at his birth. He enters into history, and he enters into history displaced and seemingly helpless, yet it is foolishness to the world, and it is powerless to those with a worldly vision of what's happening at the nativity scene. But this is the way he, he came. Point two. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the fields. And they were keeping watch over their flocks by night. And suddenly, the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. The glory of the Lord intruded from heaven onto earth, and it enveloped these lowly shepherds as they were tending their lambs, and they were filled with fear, and they were stunned. But the angel said to them, Fear not, for lo, behold, pay attention, listen up, shepherds. I bring you some tragic news. Our king has no room and has been placed in a manger, unfitting for a king. That is not what they say. <laughs> they say, I bring you good news of great joy. Good news, great joy. What happened to verse 7? He was bound in linens, placed in a food trough. He did not have a place in the guest house. And the angel of the Lord says, this is the best thing ever. This is great joy. Do you see that? Do you see that the state of humiliation and shame and weakness that besets the king of heaven, the leader and the commander of the armies of the Lord, the one who actually led the people out of the land of Egypt, the one who actually led Joshua to purge the Canaanites from the land, the one who led David into battle and victory over those that sought his life, this one, this ancient one, has finally come. And when he arrives, it is in weakness and foolishness, and there is no room for him. But the heavenly eyes of the angel of the Lord sees it, and he says, great joy. That is very bizarre, reading this through Luke. And it gets more bizarre. Look at what the angel says to these shepherds guarding their lambs. Here it is, you lowly shepherds. Here is the good news that I've come to give to you. Here is the gospel for you. Pay attention. Listen carefully. Behold. Do not let this go. Hold on to this. Here is the crescendo of Luke's narrative. The Advent announcement. Here is the heralded proclamation of the gospel that is both for the shepherds and for all people. Listen, are you ready to hear this gospel news? For unto you has been born this day. Unto who? Unto you has been born. Unto shepherds? 
I don't know about you, but when I, I, I was expecting unto Mary and Joseph was born this day. That's the regular pattern of a birth announcement. Unto Heather and John has been born Miranda. Unto Jonathan and my wife Katie was born David Tuffy, the most stubborn three-year-old in the universe. But this is different. Unto who the shepherds? Why shepherds? Have you asked yourself that question every single season you, you read this text? Why out of all the occupations does the Lord, the angel of the Lord, show up to shepherds? He doesn't show up to tax collectors or to chief priests. He shows up to shepherds. I find it to be no accident at all. Every single key federal head in the history of Israel was a shepherd. Abel, shepherd. Noah, shepherd. Abraham, shepherd. Joseph, shepherd. Moses, shepherd. David, shepherd. The Lord is in the business of showing up to shepherds. These weren't just random, run-of-the-mill shepherds either. These were Bethlehemite shepherds. Shepherds that were just south of the temple precinct, right? They guarded and watched their lambs just south of the temple so that these protected and nurtured lambs could be sold for the chief ceremonial sacrifice in Israel to atone for sin, to render peace offerings, to satisfy the Lord's wrath upon the people of God to save them from their sin that leads to death and destruction. And the angel of the Lord says, unto you has been born, shepherds. Finally, the perfect and spotless lamb has come, and the perfect and spotless lamb is the Savior, and he is Christ the Lord, and he will save you from your sins. The sign, verse 12, the sign will be that the child is bound up in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger, in a food trough. You will find, in other words, you will find this precious lamb who is Savior and Lord in a state of humiliation and foolishness. Right after the angel of the Lord reinforces this sign of humiliation, weakness, and foolishness of the manger, an entire host, which is translated more accurately as army, an entire army of angels appear. This isn't a bunch of choir boys with wings on. This is an, a, a militia of angelic warriors. And the leader of their ranks, the highest position of authority in their legion, the Lord himself has come down to win the final victory, the final battle, the mission of securing peace, the mystery mission that was prophesied from old. Maybe now, but many of you might be concerned about the war on Christmas. I don't know if that's a thing anymore. Well, guess what? Christmas is a war. The champion of heaven has come down from heaven and he's going to vanquish his enemies. Sin, death, Satan, and the grave. Guess what else he will conquer? By his mercy. Us. You, who were formerly enemies of God, were killed to the power of sin 
and Satan so that you might be brought to God as his captives. And what the eyes of the world can't recognize is that this mission is achieved not in the power of Caesar Augustus, but in the feebleness, <clears throat> the meekness, and the exile, and the foolishness that is stamped onto the Lord. But the army knows it. Right? They get it. That's why they respond with the praises of glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those whom he is pleased. They know that victory is on the horizon because they know that the route towards peace with God is a life that is stamped in humility and obedience unto death. You see, the angels, they were present when Abraham was told to take his son, his only son, and to sacrifice him. But a lamb was offered in his stead. The angels were present when God instructed Moses to take a lamb to be sacrificed and the blood to be poured out all over the doorposts or else the, the firstborn son would die. They understood, the angels understood the requirements for peace. They understood the only way peace can be achieved, can be earned, the only way peace can be reconciled on earth for men is through this folly, this stumbling block of the Messiah, this foolishness. The angels actually show up again in Luke. And um, remember when Christ refused to take the easy route, the route of no suffering, the route of no public shame and ridicule offered to him? It was offered to him by Satan. Satan, the true emperor, if you will. The prince of the power of the air. The evil serpent who has a flawless record when it comes to deceiving the sons of God. He offers Jesus a different way, a way of no suffering, no meekness, no humility, but Jesus stays the course. He refuses the devil's temptation. And lo and behold, who shows up? The angels are there to minister to Jesus, to encourage him, to stay the course that was stamped on him at his birth. Well, you know the rest of the story, right? King Jesus does continue the, the pattern, and he does march on towards his shame. The shame, of course, is heightened. The ridicule and mockery is intensified to an infinite degree. He isn't bound up again in swaddling cloths. No, his clothes are torn from him. And he's laid in a, he isn't laid in a food trough next to Mary and Joseph. He's hoisted up on a cross next to criminals. And on that day, there was no angelic accolades from heaven. Heaven produced only a deafening silence as the father pulled out, poured out the full cup of wrath on his son. And that was indeed a tragic day when the only person, the only son with whom the father ever said, this is my son, 
with whom I am well pleased, was forsaken and judged and mocked and murdered. But you see, he bore that shame and humiliation so that we might be exactly as the angels proclaim in our text. Among those with whom he is well pleased. But this mission did not end in tragedy. No, he arose from the dead, and the first thing he says to his disciples after his resurrection from the grave was, Peace to you. And that was his mission that he would bring peace before God on your behalf. This was his mission. And this was his power. But it was power that was made perfect in weakness. This was his wisdom displayed in foolishness. The one who had no place went to take your place so that he might prepare a place for you. Now, this isn't just a pattern for Jesus. This is the pattern for all those who look to him by faith. This is the pattern of those who are citizens of his kingdom, his church, brothers and sisters. This is how our religion works. This is our ethic. This is the mode of Christianity, a cruciformed life. It's paradoxical. The way up is to go down. The way to be highly exalted is to count others as better than yourselves. You must die to self. Yes, it is true that by faith you have died to the former things of this world once and for all, never to return. But also, this continues. It isn't just punctilinear. It isn't just one dot on your, on your historical timeline. You must have a life of repentance, a life of dying to self. As Paul writes, for it is granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Let me say it in a negative way. If you are living your best worldly life now, you should fear for your life. But if your life is exhausted from being poured out like a drink offering day after day after day. Your life is hidden in Christ. As the author of Hebrews says, Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. You see, his pattern is our pattern. Brothers and sisters know this. When you are suffering and the pressure and tribulation of the world surrounds you, you are in the safest place that you can be. Many of you might feel the weight of the culture, the pressure of the American culture that celebrates sexual immorality, greed, lust. You may begin to feel out of place. You feel the burden of ridicule and scorn for holding on to this Christian ethic. Know this, that in suffering, there is no safer place to be. Many of you might feel persecution. We read the news, what's happening, and we fear that. We fear, is that coming to us? Will we be persecuted? Know this, 
in your persecution, if it comes to even that level of suffering, in Christ is the most powerful place that you can be. Many of you might feel the, the weight of death and sickness taking its toll. Many have died. Many have perished. Maybe you see even the effects on your own body as your body decays. In Christ, there is no healthier place to be. It is truly the safest place to be, the sanest place to be, the healthiest place to be is in Christ as you suffer like him. This, brothers and sisters, is the true peace. Christ has borne the shame of your sin. He has suffered the wrath of God in your behalf so that as you suffer in him, you have peace. This is actually the Christmas peace that we celebrate when we read this passage. I thought it would be fitting that we conclude with the author of Hebrews who provides a helpful commentary on this passage in Luke 2. He writes, For it was fitting that he whom for whom by, and, and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. He who was bound up in swaddling cloth is he who is now adorned with robes that are more brilliant than a thousand suns. And he is not laid down he is standing at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And he is standing on your account. And his name is Prince.